You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. Alphabet for a three hours of test pattern, including a lovely live tour by Luluk. Uh, we welcome you to Bite Into It, discussing computers and new technology. This week, you're joined by Simon Brown. Hello. And me, Vanessa Tolka. So thanks for tuning in. We are going to be speaking a little bit later tonight with legendary recording engineer and record producer Casey Rice. So do stay tuned for that. We also have a little international flavour tonight with interviews recorded live in Copenhagen and Tokyo. They're short but sweet. We're on holidays after all, so <laughs> we'll get to those in a moment. But first in It Bleeds, It Leads news, Simon. Uh, a new Ebola crisis page has been built with open data. Uh, it's available at HDX Beta. The page includes an interactive map of the worst affected countries, uh, top-line figures, a graph uh, of cumulative Ebola cases, and it also makes available about 40 data sets. Um, they've worked with the WHO and UNMWR to make the data available uh, and they've received help from a bunch of other organisations. Uh, if you open up the dashboard, it includes a map uh, with the worst affected countries ranging from red to a sort of orange, yellow. And you can see that the current figures are pretty disturbing their cumulative cases of Ebola stands, according to the dashboard, at 15,351. Uh, there has been 5,469 deaths from Ebola. Uh, it's currently affecting six countries in West Africa, and there is a total of 22 centres dealing with the crisis. So do you get a sense of how much of that data is coming in live? Like real-time data? Uh, I checked it earlier today yeah. and uh, the cases have gone up. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I don't... And I, so it seem, people have feels like it's... It's not... I, like, it's not ticking up moment sure. by moment. Sure, um, But uh, I, I get a sense that the data is pretty up-to-date. Yeah. Or as up-to-date as I can get it. And it's, it's good to see that this has been built on open data, so people just trying to expose and, and get a clearer picture out of data that's already there by building some sort of dashboard. Is that the concept? Well, I think... It's it's definitely it's making the data available to people who want to get a sense of the crisis or people who might just need to monitor it. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, 
probably where the true power lies is not just opening it up and reeling off a bunch of figures. The true power probably lies in being able to delve into those data sets and doing what you want with them, and so those data sets are available. Yeah, and developing um, a bit of trends analysis and that sort of thing, a bit of a It does have... The, the front page has a pretty dramatic graph which shows uh, the cumulative cases over time, yeah. week by week, and, yeah, including at least one significant jump. So interesting stuff. All right, that's a nice application of the technology. Um, there's a new site that launched this week by the State Library of New South Wales. Um, they've been incredibly progressive in the past working with uh, locative-type services within their library. Now what they've done is delved into the archives. Um, their librarians have said that they unearthed all of this Indigenous language resource material, but being librarians and not linguists, they didn't really have the um, expertise to uh, to pull um, that data together and really make it a, a useful resource. So what they did, they engaged uh, the help of a linguist and he helped them analyse um, oh, just hundreds of kilometres of of material that they had, if you measure the shelves. <laughs> Linguists and librarians are my two favourite people. Yeah. That's fantastic. It has to be a great project, right? So what they aimed to do was make available in a culturally appropriate framework um, surviving language lists to Indigenous communities. And it's really about trying to capture um, some of the 250 known Indigenous languages across the country and maybe give people a resource that they can tap into some of this and, and feed back into places where the languages are still being taught. Um, so it's a super cool idea of a project and um, we'll tweet a link to it. It's at um, indigenous.sl.newsouthwales.gov.au but a tweet will be going out a little bit later in the show. Yeah, that uh, sounds definitely worth checking out. It's amazing the amount of uh, new discoveries which are coming from our existing collections as they get digitised. Um, and I've talked to the state archives here uh, and they've got something like 300 linear kilometres of archives and something like 1% has been digitised so yeah, far. So there'll be yet. more and more stuff to first, you know, to really gain an in increased knowledge of the world through as more of that stuff goes online. Yeah, it's nice to see all this happening under um, Alex Burns watch. He's the head librarian there. And since he's been brought on board, they've really had a lot of tech-friendly projects. So, you know, kudos to the State Library in New South Wales. Now, in a bit of a weird left-of-centre story, um, did you see this one coming out of Estonia? There's, uh, Estonia has offered e-residency to allow non-citizens access to government services and business online. Wow. Now, what does this mean, we ask? It doesn't mean that these people um, have any rights of citizens. They've got no rights to vote or anything. But what it can do is make it easier for people to operate businesses within Estonia, easier to set up bank accounts, um, prove your identities, um, create relationships with other businesses. And, um, and you get issued with these digital ID cards. Um, you can also access online services. So, I mean, it's got a real business motivation. Um, Estonia is a very strange hub of emerging technology and they're trying to build themselves up as a digital hub. So this is just another another step towards the um, the digital identity idea. So, so is that does it carry any sort of uh, weight? I mean, e-residency, would you... Does it then allow you any sort of actual residency? Is there any... No, it's, it's not tied to that. But um, it seems to have mostly financial implications, so for business and for tax. And uh, pundits have speculated that it might be about creating an e-tax haven type thing. It could be the next, uh, the next Ireland, I don't know. But 
they're trying something strange and I think it's it's worth uh, keeping an ear out for Estonian uh, developments. <laughs> that will be definitely worth looking for. That's right. Look, um, we're going to hear a little bit of music and then be back with Casey Rice in a moment. It's 7.08 on Triple R and uh, we're going to listen to Pikelet, Bug in Mouth. And we've just been joined by Casey Rice in studio. Welcome, Casey. Thank you. Hi. Hi. You had a, a little bit to do with that song there. I did. I recorded that song and mixed it for her. Yep. So yeah. you're a recording engineer and a record producer extraordinaire. Um, people might know your work from people like Pikelet locally and uh, uh, Alex and the Ramps and Tortoise very famously mm-hmm. is, is a, is a favourite of people's. Um, we are not here, tragically, to talk to you about all the amazing bands you've worked with, okay. unless you want to mention them incidentally. No, no, that's okay. However, um, being a technology show, we're really interested to hear how someone like you who has been working in the industry for so long has been seeing the technology change and how that mm. might have been affecting your work. I definitely saw a change. I mean, I started out prior to personal computers being able to re- deal with audio at all, really, yeah. and then sort of as a got older and was playing in bands then it started to creep in right right about the time that i started recording bands Uh professionally yep so when i started it was strictly analog and more based in studios and then as i started learning we were able to you know capture dat tapes remember dat tapes yeah yeah. things that look like video cassettes and you know digital audio Tape was a terrible format. Um, <laughs> it was. The tapes didn't last. Really? Oh, no, no. They're, they're, they're they were super apart. VHS tapes, weren't they? No, they weren't. ADAT, they, sorry. ADAT was, super yeah, yeah. yeah. S-Video, S-Super, uh, was it? Yeah, S-Video? I believe yeah. so, but yeah. Yeah, anyway, there were a few of those around. They were kind of like the helical scan, you know, rotary scan, video recorded transport. Yeah, they're all terrible. <laughs> well, are they still around? Uh, I'm, no, they're no. not, in fact. Well, there you go. And I'm pretty sure that vintage prices aren't really No, they're absolute garbage. You could get one of those for nothing now. So with that background and having the really fortunate timing of being able to almost catch the wave of the of the digital technologies coming in, how, where has that left you now? Do you prefer working with analog purely or well, I like working do you use with a hybrid? Stuff that sounds good. Yeah. That works well. And I'm fairly agnostic. Yeah. Otherwise, like I'm not really concerned about the gear so much yeah. as getting the ideas right yeah yeah but but i was lucky to have learned at the time when it was more of a trained skilled professional activity versus a consumer activity which i think it's kind of become more so now which is something i'm sure we could we could talk about that yeah mm. when, to- yeah sorry. oh sorry <laughs> well I, I was just now that you say that i mean i've uh followed the rise of uh bitwick which is a new uh kind of alternative digital audio workstation which is launched this year a lot of hype a lot of disappointment what's it called it's called bitwig and it's bitwig yeah never heard of it exactly exactly (laughs) and it's it's a really crowded space now with there's so many tools competing for uh musicians there's lots of different markets do you think um is there still like a uh, a set of tools that to be a professional you really need to know well, sort of. I mean, essentially, we're still still dealing with audio. So the last time I checked, what came off the back of a microphone was analog voltage that rep, you know was a representation of audio, and not much has changed really. That's kind of since the 1930s, right? Yeah. The way that we record things and are able to edit things or process things has changed somewhat. In that, we have these digital audio tools now that allow us to do emulations of older gear or they might 
give us a newer paradigm in which we could deal with audio and editing it and sequencing it or processing it, but it's still audio. Mm. If you think about it, it's still got to come out of the speaker, right? And, and vibrate air. Yeah. Indeed. So really, like, what else is there? And it's still got to come into our analog brains, I guess, our analog ears. Well, it has to vibrate of, air and make yeah, our yeah. ears vibrate and make our brains, you know, yeah. process this vibrating air and say, oh, well, that's sound. Oh, I hear that. So do you get um, bands coming to you, uh, performers coming to you with particular ideas in their head about um, the hardware? Or do they do they mm-hmm. kind of give you carte blanche and, and expect you to, no, to really guide them a lot? I don't ever assume carte blanche, but... Yes, sometimes they have ideas about gear, Yeah. but usually we try to set those aside because I'm there to take care of the gear, and I sure. know about the gear. Sure. I, I, I do feel like I have a good grasp on all that technology, but generally what we're dealing with is music. We're yeah. not dealing with gear. Yeah. You know, so the gear doesn't do any of the music. So I like to take care of the gear and sort all that out yeah. and then just try to make it as kind of invisible as possible for them so they can just perform and play music because what people really like, I mean, in in the ca- in the case of what most of what I do is people play music, yeah, and people like the sound of people playing music, yeah, but the gear is kind of like something that's in the middle that doesn't really matter all that much. That's my job, yeah, but I don't think it's something that needs to be pushed into the whole idea of like how do we make music. Hmm. So do you find yourself trying to push that back in a sense of um, that? The, the technology has brought in constraints and you're trying to either make those invisible or, or push them away? Well, no, it's usually, it's actually the opposite. Yeah. Technology has brought in too many options and I'm trying to reduce all those options so that right. we can cut to the chase and go, well, what is it that we need to do? Let's do this. And they say, well, can't we do this and that? And I was like, well, why don't we just make our minds and do what we want? Yeah. And then not get caught up in all the options. Option fatigue is like the killer yes. of digital audio because they want to, well, like you said, Bitwig. I'm sure it's got some new revolutionary feature in it that doesn't exist in some other digital audio workstation program. And that's what they're marketing on the basis of it. It, it does something that, um, you know, the other ones don't do. But really, like, well, do we need to do that is the question. And if you do, then you should get that. And if you don't, then you shouldn't get that. And after that, like, what's the point of talking about it? Yeah. Really. Do you find that uh, a, a history in sort of pre computer working helps cut through that because oh yeah well i mean well yeah because you had to learn from someone who knew how to use all that stuff and so consequently it wasn't a consumer activity it was a professional activity and if you couldn't exhibit some sort of professional competency with the gear and how to run a recording session then you couldn't do it and studio time was expensive exactly so that you wouldn't well it still is (laughs) true it still is it it still can be expensive but but the expectation is that it should be cheaper because it's competing with this phantom idea of that we can record music for free because we have a personal computer and mm. a sound card. But, it, but, but the fact of the matter is it's still audio, and I'm an audio professional. I'm not a computer professional or an analog type professional necessarily. I, I deal in audio, and whatever's appropriate for the gig is what we do. You know. So when you're working with, with technology, um, do you ever get a sense that some of it gets in the way of, of how you feel about things? Or maybe do you feel warmly towards an amp because you say, this amp feels like this band and therefore... Well, you use the right tool for the job. Yeah. Like microphones are a good example. I've got a lot of microphones and then I'll step in front of something and have a listen to what I'm going to record and I'll say, that one will work really good for this. And it's a really intuitive thing, but it comes yes. from lots and lots of trial and error. Yeah. But I don't... Re- I mean... If I'm talking to a fellow engineer mm-hmm. or someone who 
knows about all that kind of stuff, then I'm, I, I really like to talk about it. But when band people walk in the room, then I just <laughs> don't talk about it. I mean, a little bit. Yeah. You know, you can express your love for an exemplary microphone or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't, try not to take it too far. But I'll, I think I think that happens a lot with people is that they want to demonstrate their knowledge to bands mm. or whatever kind of performing artist you might be working with. And so they talk a lot of shit about gear. And because it seems really impressive, but it really, I think it's just boring, you know. Yeah, it's about the outcomes. I like that you describe well, intuition being more about actually applying experience. Well, it's interesting because, like, I, I often comes to mind when I'm trying to teach someone what I know and having to, like, s- say what it is that I'm trying to do in language. It's often quite difficult because I don't really think about it in those terms i just sort of have a catalog of a palette you know of sound in my mind and what things will make that sound what things don't and you don't really talk to yourself about it because i don't you know i don't sit there and say casey what do you think about this might that be really (laughs) good you know yeah so it's it's interesting it's just kind of what i do i mean it's yeah in terms of my practice yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah in terms of working and you you have been doing this long enough that you've seen a lot of the the tools which were in older studios become digitalized and emulated and be brought into an online or oh, a computer environment how well do those translate and how what's it like to work with those interfaces well you know emulations are emulations and they're quite often a poor emulation or sometimes they're a great emulation i mean it just depends on your what do they call in the office environment your workflow you know it depends on your workflow but what I have found is there's a, there's a large there's a large part of what's marketed now as emulations of old equipment. So you have all this kind of like classic signal processing gear that's emulated in a software plugin for your favorite digital audio workstation, and you can use that to get that Beatles sound. But the thing is, like, if you talked, and I know some older engineers who are a lot older than me, some of whom I learned from, some of whom I just n- have met and stayed friends with over the years, and if you ask them if you say, you know, do you want to use this old console, do you want to use an emulation, and they're like, why would I want to use that? There's so much better stuff now. And the kind of, like, consumer level, you know, sound interface, you know, audio interface that you could connect to your computer now, like, the young people will look at something you have that's a few years old and say... God, why do you have that? That's like yesterday's news. Isn't it really crap? But if you would have trotted that thing out in 1985 and said, hey, look at this, it would have been beyond state-of-the-art. So the idea that it's not good enough, I think, is mainly driven by marketing. And people really like marketing, as you know, from someone who reports on technology news. Like, we're continually forced to upgrade because if you don't upgrade or you don't buy What's it called? Bug dip? <laughs> Let's call it that. Bitwig. <laughs> if you don't buy those things, um, then you're not staying up with the times and you're not high tech. But it's just audio. I mean, if it's, if it's just a band. I just need to record audio and mix it. So when you've gotten to the end of that process then and you're... Well, it never ends until I die. Well, I, a song yeah. ends. Oh, okay. Like, okay. You mean like when you're done When you're done, when you're done with it, When you're done with recording something yeah. and, you know, it gets mastered and comes mm-hmm. back, it goes out into yep. the world. Um, do you have any nostalgia for old distribution formats because... I don't distribute records. I only make the recordings. I don't get involved in the business. But you must of, listen to records. Well, I listen to lots of records when I'm making them. Mm. 
when I listen to records at home, I listen like 16-year-old Casey. I don't really listen like <laughs> professional audio Casey. I just listen to music. You might, I, I, I make it a point not to get involved in selling records. It's kind of a conflict of interest for me. Like I, I don't work for record not, companies. Yeah. I work for bands. Not so much in the selling side, but you would hear it. I guess. Do you ever do you ever listen to your the way something sounds when it's come out of the other end of iTunes? No. Never. I don't care about iTunes at all. Mm. I make good sounding recordings that sound good on everything, and they should ostensibly translate across multiple formats. I mean, if you make a 64 kilobyte, you know, MP3 of it, it's, of course it's going to sound terrible. <laughs> but I don't care. If that's what you got to do to get your music out there, we'll go for it. You know, but. So, Casey, could you maybe reflect on um, some of your your biggest challenges? You know, have you ever been given something really experimental, really weird that you I thought, "How am I going to record this?" I do all kinds of weird music. I mean, yeah. I've done all kinds of really wacky stuff. You know, not just the rock bands or whatever. I've done. All... That's fun. That's when you learn how to record something new. Yeah, you know, I know how to record drum kit. Yeah, I've got that one. I feel pretty confident. <laughs> well, I mean, just because I've done it, you know, so often, I feel yeah, pretty yeah. confident about that sort of thing. New things? Well, you just try something. If it doesn't work, you try something else until it sounds good. Yeah. And then you've d- you know, chalk up another one. Oh, you're, you're so a hacker and you don't know it. <laughs> this is Well, but you know what? Before I ever started recording bands, I was into computers. Yeah, right. Like I, had, I was into computers in the 80s. Okay. Before they were, you know, when they were monochrome and there were no mice and you had to type in the whole, you know, basic program out of the back of a magazine and then hit run. How did you fall into that? Well, it was uh, just around? I think I had a mentor, a kind of teacher in school school where I grew up in a country town who was the we were the first school in the state to have programming classes amazing and um our school had a few um Tandy TRS-80 Model 3 computers with Pascal compiler on and a basic you know nice do you remember any programs that you made I made an address book in year 10 I think I remember that yeah I remember like a lot of fooling around just trying to do things and getting good three-quarters of the way there and bailing on it. And, you know, it's a teenager. Yeah, yeah. And then I had a color TRS, a Tandy color computer after that at home because I showed an aptitude for this, and my parents got me a computer. And then after that, I had a, you know, Apple II clone and stuff like that. And then I kind of lost interest when I got into punk rock bands. But I still had a knowledge of computing before it was ever, you know, audio world. Yeah, audio-focused. You make music as well. Yeah, yeah, I make kind of like left field, kind of dancey electronic music. So and improvise music some, but I haven't really done that. In and do you perform that? Yeah, yeah, and I will be f- performing again next year for the first time in a really long time. How are you using what have you chosen to perform? How are you perf- choosing to perform? I'm using so- like software program, and I'm doing a bit of live mixing with a, a small mixer and effects, kind of dub mixing kind of style thing. How much do you think? performance of electronic music live gives that experience considering that a lot of people don't know what you're doing it's not as immediate as it's I don't know uh, I mean you know that's a, that's like you know my checking my emails that you mean <laughs> well, it well can that's the cliche sometimes. right yeah, it is cliche, he just yeah. looks like he's checking his email yeah. right? I don't like it yeah. he's not dancing around like a monkey yeah. Yeah. is yeah. that even daft I don't have a those phallic helmets. instrument in my yeah. strapped across my shoulder and I'm dancing around that's right which is a real cliche anyway, it so. is a cliche but it's also, it's something that's persisted do you, do you but I mean it's music I mean if you get into the music you get into it I mean I really can't get involved in like convincing people that I'm doing something, you know what I mean, by yeah. coming up with some new gimmicks so that they can see, or putting a camera on the computer so they can see them actually doing something. Or, well, then what's I'm going to do yeah. a lot of live mixing, and that should be pretty obvious that I'm, what I'm doing with mm. the mixer in my hands is making the sound. What does it give you then? 
as a musician to do that perform rather than just turn up as a DJ and roll off tracks that you've already made. Well, it's like the the possibility of some sort of improvisation and self-expression in it as opposed to going and hitting the space bar or whatever. I mean, I don't hit the space bar, but you'll just have to trust me. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you know, that's a really funny thing in that music. It's like... You know, everybody takes a piece out of electronic dance music and says, oh, yeah, checking your email, here comes the bass drop or whatever. But, like, people like it. Uh, we, who's to say that it's not okay? Really? Yeah, I mean, no. We, it really pisses me off, actually. Yeah. It's like, you sound like an old fart. Like, oh, these kids <laughs> today, they don't know what real rock and roll is. You know, that guy's just up there with his email. <laughs> so, well, that guy's actually playing bigger shows than you, and people really like the music. And some of the music actually is transcends the genre or whatever and it's like any other kind of music it's like the good stuff's good and the crap is crap it's like country music you know? so how much have the tools improved to create electronic music live in the time that you've been doing it well i don't really use all the newest tools i've right. kind of kept my process like that i used to make records in the 90s more or less kind of intact like in the closest emulation i can find to the pieces of hardware i used to use and i actually have some of the hardware synths that I used to use, and I'm just still using them hanging on for dear life. So what are your favourites in there? Uh, I can't, you know. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, right, right. Actually, no, I use Reason, which is really daggy, and people don't like it. Everybody uses Ableton Live now. That's the go. And I still use Reason because there's an emulation of a sampler in there that's just like my Akai hardware sampler. So I just do everything like I did in 1995. Yep. I, I chop it all up and put it into the sampler and then rearrange it, and that's what I do. Pretty much. Nice. Whole genres of music have relied on reason, though. It's not necessarily a daggy thing. Well, no, it's just not what what's in vogue at the moment is everybody's into Ableton Live. And I, I've never really used Ableton Live, so I couldn't tell you one way or the other. I mean, I purposefully avoided it. Like TV or whatever. I purposefully mm. avoid watching television, too. And reason is, as you say, that it's built on instruments and it's built on... Like, it started off, you would look... At a rack of gear, the way it's still the same, exactly that way. It's still exactly the same way. It's an emulation of a rack of gear that old farts like me recognize, and you can hit the tab button, it flips over, and there's leads in the back, and you plug it into a mixer. Yeah. So it really is a super literal emulation. Now they've added a lot of things over the years that I never really get into using, so I couldn't even tell you like exact. I mean, I'm not an expert at it. Yeah. I only use it in my own kind of really naive way, and that's my process, and I want my process to stay as much the same as I can keep it for as long as I can do it because I don't want to be forced to upgrade into everything else. So I just want to do ideas. I don't really yeah. want the stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want Bitwig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'm just saying because no. it's just a continual like th- thing, keeping up and getting every, you know, getting every emulation of every synthesizer and every plug-in of every compressor and equalizer and everything else. And I, I just find it really boring. And, and then you get this option fatigue where you've got everything. Yeah. And you're just standing there staring at all this stuff like, wow, which one of these thousand synths am I going to use? It's like, well, why don't you just use one and max it out completely till you can't squeeze anything else out of it and then decide you need to get another one as opposed to just consuming all of it because you're mar- it's marketed to you. you so know? is that your approach to... Um this field in general just like go in really deep or you know did did you go broad first before deciding what to go deep into you mean in like just conceptually music? yeah in software music yeah i just had the sampler because that's all there was yeah you know i just used it and that's i still have it yeah but i can't use it anymore because there's no scuzzy you know yeah. on my computer <laughs> yeah. so i just picked the next best thing and i haven't touched anything else since and that was really 15 years ago 
I mean, I know that I'm an anomaly in that sense, but that's yeah. just my process, and yeah. I like but it. But you and also I'm, get stuff done, whereas a lot of people who are caught in the no, no, I mean, I'll use, I, I mean, I, people bring me things in Ableton Live to mix, mm. and we export. I know how to export tracks out of it. Mm-hmm. Stuff. I'm not. I mean, I can learn it. It's mm. not like I, I can't learn it, or that I think it's like evil or bad or whatever. Oh. I just. I'm just, just not, I'm just not into like learning software for the sake of it. Yeah. When I have to give up on Pro Tools because it's not in studios anymore, the company's going to go out of business, which seems entirely possible within a reasonable amount of time, then I'll learn something else. And mm-hmm. I'll just keep going because it's like a recorder. I don't really need to... It's not what's making the music. The people are making the music, and I'm recording it and mixing it, so I'm just using this thing that's like a product, you know? That sounds incredibly similar to a programmer aesthetic. Well... Who yeah. cares? It's boring. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just consumer yeah, yeah. stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of that comes from reading the internet or reading magazines or something, looking at all the advertisements and thinking, oh, wow, I got that. It would be really inspiring. And, you know, sometimes, like, getting a new thing can be kind of inspiring or, like, a new guitar inspires you to write a song or whatever, but it doesn't really last. And yeah, you just yeah. keep buying stuff. So have you ever been a purist about something other than other than maybe reason? Would you, would you a, describe yourself as a purist? purist. I, just, yeah. my, I have a friend who's worked as a with the develop people who develop it yeah and when it first started going he's like check this out and i was yeah. like okay this is good and so i bought it and they've been very gracious over the years to give me cheaper free copies of it sure. as an artist or whatever and so yeah. i still have it yeah you know i use it i used it recently actually is oh. the you say i mean like pro tools is a perfect example of it is it's a company that's you know it's trying new things but you know there is some doubt over its future Oh, definitely. You've got uh, lots of studios which have guys who've never used anything else in digital space. Because there wasn't anything else when we started well, using exactly, that stuff. Well, exactly, yep. That's why it still exists. And There yep. was no Windows audio, digital audio workstation when I started at all. There was only Pro Tools. I mean, arguably, a few years later, there were a couple of Cubase and the Windows and stuff, but they weren't really what was adopted because they didn't have the hardware to get the in- inputs and outputs that would suit a bigger studio, so it just never got adopted by anyone. And... It's, so that's what's around. That's what I'm going to use. I mean, I could be difficult for the sake of it and say, well, I'm going to use Reaper because it's cheap and they're really cool and they update it all the time. Because it is cheap and yep. it is really cool and it works and they update it all the time and it's very well supported and a lot of people are using it now. But when I go to a recording studio, then I have to translate that into a Pro Tools file and then back and then back and forth. And then you, it starts to take more time and people pay me for my time. So I just, in the interest of efficiency, I just use that because it's around. But I don't really love it. I don't love them as a company at all. So have you ever maxed out the constraints of what you're recording in? Like Always. the amount of... Yeah, yeah people really. would bring you stuff with like 100 tracks in it now because computers can record so much audio. Yeah. That bring you something to mix and it'll have a track kind of 100 and something. Right. Because <laughs> you can. That's another principle in audio we could talk about. The because you can principle. Engineers love to do things because they can, not right. because it's a good idea. Like, oh, let's auto-tune it and cut everything up and shuffle it around. Look at all the stuff I can do because it, then you seem to be doing something as opposed to doing what's appropriate. So okay. how do you know where to let Occam's razor fall and, and go, this is... I don't know. It's like when it sounds good. Yeah. Or I'm not sure. It's like on a case-by-case basis, I uh-huh. guess. Uh-huh. I mean, some people like that make like, you know, emo metalcore or whatever that's like totally fanging perfect, you know... <laughs> rock kind of stuff yeah that all demands that kind of perfectionist you know putting everything on the grid and make it really perfect and everything's got to be super in tune because that's the style that isn't my particular style of music i work with a lot or otherwise i'd learn how to do that 
How important is your visual sense to you in I really hate audio together? the screen in the studio. Yeah. It's really distracting because, you know, put a TV somewhere, go to the pub. Yeah. Turn off all the TVs, sit around for a couple hours, check people out. They turn on a TV and watch what happens. Well, the same thing happens in a studio too. You turn on a screen and everybody's looking at it yeah. and staring at it. And then they start to stare at it while they're trying to make decisions about what they're listening to. And it influences the way they decide about what's good or bad, you know, yeah, how they evaluate yeah. things. Because they're staring at it. So I try to put mine over to the side. I don't have a really big one in the center or anything. In my studio, it's over to the side wall. And I sit in front of it so you can't really see it. That's interesting because it is such a poor representation of they've, they've but, never but it's really good too. gotten like for editing. I can see yeah. where I need to go and yeah, cut yeah. things and move things around. That's fine. Mm. But the other thing it's done is it keeps you pinned down to the computer for the whole day. So you're just in a chair. It's like you become an office worker. Whereas the boys used to roll around before and get up and walk around and you know go change reels of tape or wait for the tape to rewind. So the cadence of work or the like the temp to the rhythm of your work day is so different with a computer. You're just there. And because it's fast, people demand speed. They're like, oh, we go. You know, gets, we can get so much done in one day, you know. So you have a demand for increased output, too, yeah. for people. They expect more. Yeah. Which is fine. I, I, I can go fast. Have you found musicians are finding it um, that technology is pushing the boundaries of what they hear and that there's a that musicians are less confident in their own abilities now. I'm thinking about things like audio tune you mentioned before. That it's very rare that you hear a recording that isn't perfect. And yeah, you do. I don't know what you've been listening to. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you do on this stream. You yeah, do you on hear. this station, but you know, I mean, yeah. if you if in you, the mainstream, in the hear, mainstream, you hear because you can a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and do yeah. You, does that affect the mentality of the musicians? Somewhat, I think so. Yeah, I mean, once again more with people with less experience or might be younger like a, this happens quite regularly where we'll be recording say an overdub on a track that the band has played live together I'm going to add another say another guitar and they'll get about halfway through the song and quit and they'll say did you get enough and I'll say <laughs> enough what and they say did you get enough you know like enough that you can is that enough for the song and I was like no you have to play the song <laughs> Because it's, you know, it's yeah. a performance. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that happens quite often where people just kind of assume that you're going to play the, play the verse once and play the chorus once and you'll chop it all together because it's the perfect idealized version of the verse, chorus, verse of guitar two or whatever. Wow, that's incredible. No, that uh, happens all the time. <laughs> but, I mean, but it's not their fault mm. because some, because you, because I can person did that for them because they're trying to seem to, you know, want to be worthwhile or prove their worth or their utility in the situation, they do it all the time because they can. Um, Casey, thank you so much for your time with us. You're welcome. I think there's probably a few listeners right now deciding to become recording engineers because... I really doubt it. You've made this sound <laughs> like a very uh, a very interesting profession and, uh, and something... Well, I still like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Um, it's 7.38 and we are going to hear a couple of messages and be back with more after this.
And interestingly, we both went on holidays. Luckily enough, we both went on holidays overseas this year. And both of us came back with chiptune interviews. Chiptunes are taking over the world, man. Where were you? I was in Tokyo. I was lucky enough to be in Tokyo at the same time as the Tokyo edition of Square Sounds Festival. Melbourne people know that Square Sounds happens in Melbourne and is next on in March, March next year. That's right. Um, but... Because I followed them on social media, I was I found out that, hey, they're on in Tokyo when I'm in Tokyo. And it w- was an amazing fest. I was only really able to go for a few hours, but it was so worth just going and checking it out. And where oh, were you? I was in Copenhagen, where I caught up with one of the founders of a Danish art and technology studio. And um, they're a workshop studio gallery, and they're called Science Friction. And uh, I was put onto him through um, Amani Nassim, a local games developer. So let's, let's hear something from Copenhagen, and then we'll hear something from Tokyo, maybe. Jakob Segarami. What would you describe your work as currently? It's spread out between a lot of different things. I normally say that it's it's many things, but it's in the space between people and technology. So science friction, thats a, it's a really catchy name, mm-hmm. but when you talk about the friction, what sort of friction were you imagining? Well, we like to think of ourselves as a more kind of exponent for the more critical approach to technology. So a lot of uh, the kind of creative tech business is, is very, very happy about anything that comes out of uh, major hardware producers from California or whatever. And just anything that's on the internet is always great. And um, while well, we have a more kind of critical agenda, basically, we try to, to ask critical questions and we also try to look a bit broader, maybe, both to contemporary arts, but also over history and also to other technologies. Than, than software or electronics, so it's it's um, kind of a more broad scope. So then, where does your beloved Game Boy sit in this? Uh, well, the Game Boy is um, it's this amazing portable machine that Nintendo put out in '89, right? And it just sounds really good, and it has a really nice form factor. And it has a nice reflective screen, which means that I can use it on the beach or in the sunlight. And it's really, uh, it's really a cool little cheap machine that sounds good. And an amazing guy called Johan Kotlinski has written some software that you can just put in your Game Boy and then you can compose music on this machine. And honestly, uh, this work form suits me better than Ableton Live or whatever. Uh, I mean, also Ableton Live is super expensive and I get really turned off by opening these kind of uh, digital audio workstations to just kind of have all these plugins and stuff. It's really confusing and it sounds like everything else. So the Game Boy is really nice because it has some limitations, it's portable and it has a really good sound. Did you have a Game Boy when you were a kid? No, I never played a Game Boy when I was a kid. I had a Commodore 64, Mm -hmm. which I somehow also think sounds better. I mean, the Commodore 64 has an analog ring modulator and it's SID chip and it's really quite amazing for a synthesizer. That's the kind of stuff people buy for a lot of money if it says uh, Moog on the top of it. But anyways, um, it's it's not as portable. So so I went for the Game Boys because I like to yeah make music on the beach.
so yeah, and that was uh, JSR's music as well in that. Uh, he's got a duo called La Belle Indifference, I understand. Indifference. Indifference. I beg to, I beg to indifference. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And uh, we did chat for a little longer than that, but the, the wind was picking up and there were c- trucks driving by. So, uh, Jakob, really appreciate your time. Thank you for that. It's interesting. He says a lot of the same stuff that Casey said about just working with limited options and, and the importance of the sound, sound. Going back to the sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of uh, what he said uh, is echoed by Franz Twisk, who I talked to in Tokyo. He uh, runs uh, the Einbass Chip Tune event in the Netherlands, which regularly gets several hundred people. And uh, we talked about uh, one of the acts, who was uh, Chip Tanaka, who. Uh, uh, was instrumental in uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System sound chip in creating that. And also uh, we talked a little bit not only about chiptune but about squee, which is... Uh, an when I'm excited and I go squee! Exactly. It's also a, it's a, a related, somewhat related music genre where people take a piece of technology, usually a synth, and just try to push it to its edge. It's really similar to that sort of demo scene aesthetic of just like taking something and running with it until the edges of what it can do. Anyway, uh, Franz was really interesting and this is what he had to say. Twisk from the Netherlands, and I organize Einbaz chiptune shows there. So, what did we just see? Uh, just the last act was Hip Tanaka, um, which is like a hero because he like um, he made like music for the original Mario um, and other Nintendo songs, um, and he's one of the designers of the Game Boy sound chip, the actual chip. Chiptune wouldn't exist like without him. The music he does. Um, is is different than his work. It's not like, for instance, not like pure chip tune what he does. But he's such a hero. He can do whatever he wants, right? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Visuals is very sort of 80s demo scene. It's an 8-bit aesthetic. How important do you think is that blockiness? I think, um, well, I mean, it's interesting because, of course, you know, we we say, oh yeah, we have chip tune, so it's um, game related, it's it's pixel related, it's low resolution related, but it's not related to that. Um, you don't necessarily have to relate it to that. It's just people who love like minimal graphics, minimal music, minimal hardware. I think the chiptune scene is like really um, close to the hardware and what it can do, and that's why we instead of like also just using 8-bit or uh, pixelated graphics there's a lot of like circuit bending or like glitch art which is all like love for the machine yeah you know the machine can do this and we're turning it into something it can't do while it's glitching which is like a beautiful thing in a way (laughs) you know it's it's yeah it has this this sort of soul which you've never seen before and and but it still can it, it shows the real sort of the real thing yeah the real machine Netherlands is quite central to squee how related are the two scenes <laughs> that's curious we haven't talked you didn't ask about me about squee did you 
I'm a huge Kui lover. I actually, I'm gonna um, perform. T I'm gonna do a DJ set tomorrow at the after party, the Square Sounds after party, and I've been thinking about what I want to play, but I'm probably gonna do some Squee stuff. Yeah. How related do you think the two are? What what is the what is the bond between the two? I think the the bond is um, having love for like simple technology, like um, lo-fi music, like old synthesizers, old or game computers that have these um, borders where the music is, but at the same time they're unlimited what you can do with it and, and and they have like i mean like synthesizers like you have to want you you want to ha like have a specific synthesizer because it produces that sound it's the same with the game boy it's the same with chiptune you want to use the game boy or the nas or whatever because it has this specific sound which sounds so authentic and so deep like it it, it just there's nothing else like it you can't you know you can't emulate it because it's it's so authentic, I guess. So I think authenticity is like the thing which shares it with Squee as well. That was uh, chiptune promoter Franz Twisk, who runs the Einbass events in the Netherlands. Uh, the music in that, you starting off, we heard from Gigendekt, who played at the Square Sounds Festival in Tokyo. Uh, in the middle was the was one of the Super Mario songs from uh, Hirokazu Tanaka, otherwise known as Chip Tanaka, and finishing off uh, that little snippet at the end was by Squee Pioneer, Daniel Savio. Mm. Before that, we also heard JSR's chiptune duo, La Belle Indifference, and also Life is Swell by T54. Uh, so, that was uh, a nice little bit of geeking out, uh, chiptunage. And I, I just think it really, like, there is a theme... Uh, that has been running through tonight of taking, just pushing the boundaries of something and not... Pushing the technology to the side. Pushing technology to the side yeah. and really, yeah, focusing on what's important. On the content. Yep. That's great. We need to do a little bit more of that ourselves. Um, <laughs> let's cover some events, Simon. There's been a few things going on. Uh, we have noticed that Freeplay is organising a free multiplayer local video games um, series uh, during December at Fed Square. So every Tuesday in December from 6 to 8pm. Uh, that's something to look out for. You can play up on the big screen there and there'll be local games, all Australian games there. Um, um, they're, they're also presenting an event with Cara Ellis, author of the Embed with Games series at Bella Union. Uh, Cara they say, has a uniquely global perspective on what it means to make games today. And in the last year, she's journeyed to Paris, Los Angeles, Singapore, Tokyo, and now Melbourne in order to live with and write about those who make games. And so she's up to Melbourne now. She's going to live with some developers here and see you know, what the game scene is like in Melbourne. So hopefully you guys will be putting on a show. <laughs> That's very good. Um, Pause Fest have opened up their early bird tickets and released a huge swathe of their program. It's really worth checking out. Um, early birds are available until December the 4th. So PauseFest is all about the intersection of creativity, technology and entrepreneurship. So it's actually a, a pocket of, of money uh, there crossing over with technology. So it's kind of interesting from that perspective because you get to see what people can do with their super creative ideas when they've actually got a big, bit of cash behind them. Um, some of the people speaking at PauseFest next year will be Ben Keenan, who's um, from Clemenger, BBDO, and he's working on a super cool um, project for the TAC as well. They've had really edgy work come out of them, so 
He's someone to look forward to. Um, they're getting people from This American Life. Um, they've got people from that great startup with the the uh, I think you say LifeX, those LED light bulb type things, smart bulbs. Um, a great little Melbourne doer. So. I saw the lineup and a poster. It's quite amazing like, the, the sort of depth and breadth of people that they've got coming to this thing. Um, yeah. Nigel Dalton from REA uh, posed the question whether Pause Fest wasn't um, our South by Southwest interactive, <laughs> which is a big call, but let's let's hope that that's what they're aiming for and um, that would be amazing. Um, True for Melbourne. True. Yeah. Uh, in speaking of fests, uh, Experimenta, Biennale of Media, Arch, um, Art, Arch, Art, uh, is uh, tomorrow night, 27th of November, 6 to 8 p.m. at the RMIT Gallery. Um, and they... The blurb reads, and I love this, the artists in the Experimenter 6th International Biennale of Media Art are alert to both the intimate and the broader cultural context with which they move, through which they move and live. By listening, watching, thinking and making, they recharge knowledge and meaning systems, reinvigorating these systems or radically transforming them. That's a big brief. All it's right, a big I like brief. It. <laughs> it's intimate and it's expansive. Yep. And yeah, it's really going to be worth checking out. And it's on tomorrow night. Out. Yeah, Cake Industries are going to be representing there. Um, they're pretty amazing. Christy Diener's coming down yep. for that, so um, she's someone to look out for. Do check it out. We'd like to say thank you to Casey Rice for being our guest this evening. If you'd like to hear some of his work, um, the Forte and Designer record with uh, Casey Rice is coming out on text in January, so do keep your ears out for that. We'll try and tweet about it while we're on holidays. Um, we'd also like to thank uh, Jakob Sikoremin and Franz Twisk, and uh, thanks to Simon and Sam for being on the team this week. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.